This episode of Behind the Bots is brought to you by Fingertech Robotics, North America's top manufacturer of combat robotics parts. If you're interested in building your first combat robot, check out Fingertech's Viper Kit, which includes everything you need to build a fully functional, competitive ant weight. Fingertech also carries a complete line of wheels, hubs, motors, and other components if you want to build a bot from the ground up. Check them out online at www.fingertechrobotics.com. From our living rooms, as we practice social distancing, this is Behind the Bots, the podcast that brings you the stories of the builders behind BattleBots. I'm Chris. I'm Luke. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kyle. And today on the podcast, our panel discussion with BattleBots designers Orion Beach, Leanne Cushing, Emmanuel Carrillo, Isaac Mailers, and Ellis Ware. We'll wrap up the show with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. If you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, CastBox, TuneIn, Podbean, and Player FM. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Behind the Bots. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend. We really appreciate your support. Time for this week's Combat Robotics News. I have six news items for you today. First up, BattleBots supporters got an early look this week at most of the 63 bots that are expected to compete at the 2020 season of the show, which is scheduled to begin filming in October in Long Beach, California. Now, the four of us are BattleBots supporters, of course, so we got to see those names, and there are some really big names that are conspicuously absent. Rather than telling you ourselves, I'd encourage you to go to the official BattleBots Facebook page and sign up to become a supporter. It's five bucks a month and helps you support your favorite TV show. So go and do that now. Once you sign up, if you look at the daily name drop post from this past week, I've included an analysis of each daily drop in the comments section of each post. Um, so breaking down who's in, who's out, um, surprising new names, like that kind of stuff. Really, really cool. That said, there were a dozen teams that have since publicly posted that they're sitting out the 2020 season of the show due to the global pandemic, travel restrictions, and work, school, and family commitments. Those teams are British Bots, Cobalt, Monsoon, Ripper, Orion, and Nelly the Ellibot, Canadian teams Ferocity, Hack and Slash, and Pardon My French, South Korea's Team Orby, Australia's only heavyweight Death Roll, Robot Ruckus Favorite, the Krusty Grab, and Overhaul, the Electric Blue Grappler Bot from Noted Van Enthusiast slash anime connoisseur Charles Guan. Meanwhile, nine teams have publicly confirmed that they will be competing this season. Tombstone, Whiplash, Sawblaze, Scorpios, Kraken, Ghost Raptor, Sporkinok, Jackpot, and Endgame. We'll continue to bring you updates to the story as teams make additional announcements in the future. Kyle, I know that uh, we we were texting back and forth uh, this entire week as uh, these daily name drops came out. Like BattleBots would announce ten additional uh, names every single day. Thoughts on this story? Knowing that we can't talk about much, but uh, you know, I'd love to to get your your first your first reactions. I can't stand it. I know um, I'm I'm usually a huge shill from the supporters group, but I'll go ahead and say it that new bot that rides around on six giant spider legs with wheels on the bottom of them that eats other bots alive and then spits them out. I cannot wait to see that in the box. 
Kyle, I was so curious about like the size of the jaw on that that robot. Like I've never seen a robot with like that big of a jaw. It's kind of like if if um, if Megatento, you know, had like like a, a crushing crushing action, you know, versus just a capturing action. Pretty interesting. It's mostly jaw, you know. It's mostly jaw, and what's really impressive about it is that Greg gave the exception for the uh, twelve hundred pounds limit on this yes. bot, which is really cool. Yes. Yeah, because it's both walking and rolling. <laughs> I, I find it impressive that somehow they managed to uh, figure out how from that huge jaw to get it to spray acid. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's a really weird rule exemption that they let in. I, you guys should really join the supporters group so you can learn about this new bot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say that it's it's remarkable that several hundred people who uh, are, are paid BattleBot supporters like us, uh, several hundred people can keep a secret in the age of the internet. When, yeah, the supporters uh, do a good job. They really do. It's, it's, it's really cool. I mean, like I've seen so many um, threads out on the internet this past week of people begging, please tell me who's coming, who's not coming. And supporters, you know, kind of banding together and really encouraging people to go and support the show financially. Um, and so uh, I would say that we are we are in the same boat. So go and support the show on Facebook. Uh, I will say, as a admin of the uh, Facebook group, the BattleBots Facebook group, the supporters are rather annoying because all of those posts where people say, "Please tell me who the bots are going to be. Do I have to fight, be a paid supporter? Can you just tell me?" Almost no. all of the supporters report that to the admins. So I get <laughs> my phone just like explodes with notifications of like reports of activity on the BattleBots page, which normally means, right, like um, somebody's pearl sale or like jewelry sale accidentally got through and is now live on the group and I have to go delete it really fast. So I respond to those very quickly. And in this particular case, it was just a whole bunch of people responding to that post, like, delete this, get rid of this. And I was like, no, it's fine. Nobody's going to, I mean, I'm going to keep an eye on it, but like, I'm not deleting this guy's post. Everybody needs to know that you can't, you can't know this information unless you're a supporter. So absolutely, I'm going to leave this guy's post up so people know that. <laughs> so you're, you're saying that we, we did not only have solidarity, but also a subset of us are uh, insufferable. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> On over to New Zealand, where the team behind Endgame this week posted a 10-second teaser video of them firing up their new vertical spinner. A sharp-eyed fan noticed that the team had swapped out the weapon support rails in the offseason in an effort to cut weight or add strength. On over to Brooklyn, where Shatter Captain Adam Wrigley published the second video detailing changes they've made to their Hammerbot in the offseason. In this episode, Adam shares why his team redesigned their bot from the ground up and will compete in the next season of BattleBots with a billet aluminum frame. Adam says the team designs with three factors in mind, performance, repairability, and cost, and found that their 2019 design failed across all three factors in its match against Minotaur. Really interesting video with a detailed breakdown of the aftermath of the Minotaur fight. We'll include a link to the video in this week's show notes. The team behind the tough little lifter bot Gruff showed off a brief teaser video this week of their mega torch igniting in slow motion. Last season, the team's flamethrower put out one and a half million BTUs of energy with flames reaching 3000 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm the same way. I'm a pretty hot sleeper. <laughs> 
This week's must-watch video comes from Tombstone Captain Ray Billings, who published the definitive guide to the giant bolt and giant nut, answering literally every question we've ever seen posted online about both. The show's giant nuts and bolts are made of aluminum and custom-built by Bob McGee's Machining Company in Berkeley, California. The giant nut weighs 28 pounds and measures 10 inches across, with a thread count of five threads per inch. The giant bolt weighs 42.7 pounds. The Whoa. head of the bolt is also 10 inches across with a threaded portion that comes in at nine inches long. Most importantly, yes, the giant nut and giant bolt fit together, making them the ultimate prize for aspiring BattleBots competitors. Ray filmed this latest video from his game room at home, which has walls of framed photos and BattleBots memorabilia, including the Fist of Tantrum, which Tombstone ripped off in their 2018 exhibition match. Such a delightful video. I absolutely loved seeing Ray at home talking about like these two incredibly prized possessions of his. Um, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I will take a little bit of credit because uh, the giant nut and the giant bolt came up in our BattleBots champions panel discussion at Maker Fair Miami. Um, and there were like a lot of questions from the audience about it. Um, Paul Ventimiglia talked a little bit about his three giant nuts. And Ray mentioned, you know, that he is one of the very few people who have both a giant bolt and a giant nut. Um, and then a couple of weeks later came out with this video. Absolutely delightful stuff. Um, I really, really encourage you to, to watch this video. So Kyle, you're a Facebook admin. Can you just pin this now to the top of the Facebook page? Because hopefully it'll uh, answer everybody's questions that seem to ask it every other third day. You know, it's in the um, announcement with the rules that Dale, uh, Dale Bruce from Shunt Posting made me. Um, it's, I think, like rule number seven of the group is, yes, the giant bolt does thread into the giant nut. Um, but, you know, reading is hard. And people <laughs> don't always do that. And that's okay. You know, um, that's really my job to get that information out there. But no, I can't pin it to the top because right now what I have to have pinned to the top is no, we don't know when the next season is airing because that's really the most common and annoying question. But at least we get to say we know it's being filmed now. So that's good. Yeah, that's something. That's something. That's something. Um, my thought from all of this is I can't wait until a BattleBots competitor does the ultimate hat trick and gets two giant bolts to thread into their giant nut from either side. So you get, you know, Ooh. your your bolt, nut, bolt trophy, and that is guaranteed to make any shelf in your house collapse. <laughs> <laughs> I am waiting for Paul Ventimiglia to win a giant bolt. Um, I would love to see Paul come to the show um, in a future season with um, something that, that wins most destructive or, or most innovative design or, you know, kind of the, the builder's choice award. Um, Cause I, I really think that he deserves it. Um, and, you know, with his three giant nuts, like you could make like an incredibly, <laughs> an incredibly heavy kind of like mega sculpture um, if, if he had a bolt or two, you know, to, uh, to add to that. I absolutely love this idea, but um, he's never going to get the builder's choice because all of the builders don't want him to win anymore. He's never going to get most destructive because, um, you know, they don't give that to the person who actually wins the tournament. Um, I think he's got to come with a completely different robot if he's going to get a giant bolt. He's talked on the show about how how he's interested in possibly bringing a second robot, you know, kind of 
building out like a team Wayachi kind of um, aesthetic for, for his team. Um, so I, I have a lot of faith that, you know, the successor to bite force um, is giant bolt worthy. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that day. Cause I, I think that Paul really, really deserves that. Agreed. Agreed. And finally, we'd like to close out this week's news by encouraging you to watch the latest video from BattleBots announcer Farouk Tahid, who remains a visible and active supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. We stand with you, Farouk, and the many thousands of people who continue to protest for equity and justice for Black Americans. And that's it for this week's news. After the break, our final panel discussion at Maker Fair Miami. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the BattleBots Design Panel. Uh, my name is Kyle Kroos. I'm one of the co-hosts of the weekly podcast, Behind the Bots, where we share news from the world of combat robotics and in-depth interviews with BattleBots builders past, present, and future. Uh, today, it's my great pleasure to lead a conversation with Orion Beach from Hijinx and Scorpios, Leanne Cushing from Valkyrie, uh, Manuel Carrillo from Mad Catter, Cat King and Warhawk, Isaac Mailers from Malice, and Ellis Ware from Pulsar, Magnetar, Great White, and Sandstorm. Um, these folks are all crucial, crucial parts of the design collaboration on their respective teams. Uh, so we have represented here a pretty diverse array of design experience and backgrounds, and I'm looking forward to getting into design process and philosophy with them over the next hour. Um, so before we get started, um, with all of our listener, listener questions, I'd like to remind you guys that you can add questions in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen right next to the chat function. Uh, we already have dozens of questions in the queue, but uh, we'll do our best to get to most, if not all of your questions live. So to kick us off, I'd love to do a quick round of introductions. Uh, we'll start with Ellis. Um, Ellis, can you tell us who you are? what you do and the path that kind of led you to uh, robot design, if you will. Put me on the spot there. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm Ellis, I'm 24 years old. I've been building robots since gosh when, um, 2012 officially was my first competition. So um, I was like most people, I was a fan of the original show. In my case, it's a Robot Wars in the UK. Um, I discovered BattleBots on YouTube a little bit later on. Um, and I just wanted to get involved um, uh, from a very young age. Unfortunately, like most like seven-year-olds, I didn't necessarily have the ability. Um, but fast forward a bit to my early teens, I was looking for something to do um, with my time. Um, and I'm very fortunate to have very supportive parents who they were like, uh, well, if you can figure out what to buy and, and how, to, how to actually do it, then we'll maybe you know, try and help you get to a competition one day. And so that's more or less what happened. And I started in the 30 pound class, the featherweight class. Um, and I learned how to be an engineer, if that's even a thing, um, by the method of building more robots. And so in order to build more better robots, I needed to gain skills. I needed to learn how to use CAD packages, started off with SketchUp and then, you know, migrated to SolidWorks Inventor and I currently use SolidWorks and that sort of thing. So it's just been a journey um, like that, really. Um, and uh, yeah, through that, I've managed to meet some awesome people, get on some TV shows and have a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you for being the, uh, the British wing of our panel today. We really appreciate you being here. <laughs> no problem. I'd like to move on to um, Isaac. Uh, so Isaac, can you tell us uh, who you are and uh, what you do and what kind of path led you to robot design? Can you hear me? Yeah, there you go. Hi, buddy. Because I got automated. Uh, I'm a software engineer. Um, 
kind of the path that led me to doing robots is that I really like working in multiple disciplines, whether it's mechanical and software or electrical, and robotics is kind of the culmination of all of those. Um, so I just really enjoy pulling everything together across the board. I like that very much. Um, all right, and then also with us today is Leanne Cushing. Leanne, if you could tell us who you are and uh, what you do and what led you into this crazy path. Sure, um, I'm Leanne Cushing. I'm the captain of Valkyrie on uh, the current BattleBot show. Um, I've had a robot problem for since 2002, so yeah, 18 years now. Um, I started on first robotics rather than BattleBots, and I've changed, well, like, I still appreciate first, but instead of mentoring teams now, I, I like to just build. Um, and then by my profession, I am a professional uh, designer, a mechanical engineer, so. Very cool. Um, next, I'd like to talk to Orion Beach. Uh, so Orion, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and uh, what got you into this crazy sport? I'm Orion Beach. Um, I'm, I guess, the, the lead designer and engineer for Hijinx uh, for the season on BattleBots for uh, my team, Offbeat Robotics. Uh, and I currently work at Autodesk at one of their technology centers in San Francisco as their CNC shop supervisors. So uh, yeah, I help people build and design some pretty cool stuff. Uh, how I got to what I'm doing um, in Fighting Robots. I started in about 2003 with Fighting Robots, late 2003. Um, uh, my friend Zachary Lytle got me into it. We went to the same uh, junior college in Santa Rosa. And um, yeah, I had already taken some CAD classes and I ended up changing my engineering uh, degree over to machine tool technology. And I ended up spending a lot of time as a machinist uh, professionally. And uh, I've also spent time as a mechanical engineer at a couple different companies. So yeah, kind of my cool. background. Um, and next I'd like over to move over to Emmanuel. Emmanuel, if you could tell us uh, who you are and uh, kind of what you do and what got you into this sport. Um, yeah, I'm Emmanuel Carrillo. I'm an industrial designer. So I went to school for industrial design. Um, I guess uh, like day to day, that just means I, I do product design and, and kind of help uh, companies uh, create everything, anything. Uh, but uh, I guess how I got into robots, I was uh, in high school, I did first robotics um, and we were like the first, I was like the first class in my high school that I did it. So we were really bad. Uh, so I didn't do it much after high school, but uh, I guess after the season one reboot, uh, I remember seeing that and being like, oh, I remember uh, loving that as a kid and kind of searched out and found out that there was local competitions in, up here in Seattle and went to them and started small um, and then kind of made my way up to the big class. Um, um, so yeah, that's at least the, the short and sweet of it. Nice. Um, so Emmanuel, let's just stick with you while we go into kind of my first question. Uh, this is a question that I wanted to ask you guys just to kind of set the mood for the panel before we dove into the listener questions. Um, so tell us what the keystone of your design process is when it comes to combat robotics. Do you start with a shape? Do you start with a weapon type? Do you start with an aesthetic theme, a movement dynamic? Um, what is your kind of basis that you start from and how does that inform your process? Um, I guess for me, I, I tackle it from, uh, you know, the, what's the main, you know, the hardest problem to solve 
Um, and that for most of us is just getting it to work. Uh, so I lay out all the uh, base components, wheels, drivetrain kind of weapons in like a, a block. And then from there, arrange it into a general shape and then go from there on like, what, what can this actually look like? But uh, in the end, this needs to move. It needs to kind of have power. Um, and so we just, I just lay out the bulk components in a, yeah, kind of in a plane in, in CAD uh, and uh, yeah, just see, just see what kind of, what that lends itself to. Um, and then we can start getting creative once we kind of have the base down. Um, but from, from the starts, yeah, what makes it, uh, what makes it work and then, and then skin it. Got it. Um, all right. So I'd like to ask the same question kind of moving backwards down the line. So Orion, what is the uh, keystone of your design process? What, what do you like to start with when you're looking at a new battle bot? And considering that you've put together two for the TV show, uh, I think that you'll, you might have some interesting insight. Yeah. Yeah. Both Rex and Scorpios. Um, I, I did a lot of design work for, uh, obviously, and then uh, working on a third design, getting onto BattleBots. So BattleBots is a little different. Most open competitions, I kind of look at what's currently out there in the weight class that I'm uh, building for, and then I'll try and figure out something that I think will do well against most of that field. So like when I built Electric Boogaloo for the heavyweight division, um, that field was full of um, articulated wedge robots, lifter robots, and last rights. So I didn't build a robot um, to fight last rights. I built a robot to fight um, a bunch of wedges. So that's why I built the vertical spinner. And then I had to kind of adapt it to fight a big horizontal spinner. So that's a, a lot of what goes into it. BattleBots has this other constraint, which is... Um, you have to be able to get in first. So like you can have the most competitive winningest design ever submit it and get rejected. And that's definitely what happened season one for us uh, when we submitted to BattleBots. And we can't, had a couple options. We could have put a bunch of things on it to make it look more cool. Um, or we could have submitted something kind of wild and crazy. And the team I was with at the time was like, let's, too wild and crazy and that's where rex came from so that was a very fun robot yeah it's pretty silly um all right so i'd like to move over to leanne and ask you the same question so leanne what is your your keystone when it comes to design is there a specific element you like to start with first a shape uh practical ability what what kind of gets you going and how does that inform your process Sure. Um, so for Valkyrie specifically, it was sort of, um, Fred had the initial idea, but we're both kind of like, what will get us on the show? What will be interesting? And so that's kind of, we knew we had to look good and we had to bring something that was unique. Um, and so at the time there was no other like undercutter. So we're like, well, let's go with that. And uh, the shape was sort of an idea that uh, Fred had and from there, we just started to play with like sort of component placement and how we could make a thing stable. And that's sort of how the shape started to evolve. And Alex did a lot of the like super complicated angles in Fusion 360 actually, because it's impossible to do in SolidWorks. Um, and then, yeah, for other robots, it's usually either a theme that's something silly comes up 
uh, and then just sort of pursue that or uh, for like if I'm curious about how a robot is built or like what the um, limits or something of it, like I made a 30 pound hammer bot just cause I was curious to see like what annoyances and what uh, benefits does a hammer have versus making a high kinetic like weapon. Um, and so, yeah, that's pretty much it. Fair enough. Um, all right, so I'd like to move over to Isaac. Um, Isaac, you just put together um, your first robot with your team, first big heavyweight for BattleBots. Um, can you tell us what that process was like, what the keystone to that design process was, and what kind of informed your decisions from there? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I would say that the first thing that I look at, uh, in general, maybe not for Malice, is uh, what kind of weapon I want to use and what what the win condition for the robot is, so how the weapon is going to work to damage the opponent. Uh, when I joined Malice, that was kind of already sorted out. We already had kind of the design archetype. Um, so the second thing I look at is kind of weight and placement of components. So you're going to have some components that you can't change for whatever reason. Like you, maybe you have a particular motor that you want to use because of it's what you're familiar with, or you have a particular part kind of already laying around, or you already have kind of the, the, the part of the robot that is really the soul of it that you have in mind that you can't change. So you, it's important to like weigh all those out and kind of get those in the model and see what is left uh, for the rest of the robot, like what your options are in terms of weight and components. Um, and once that's done, I'll typically start kind of laying stuff out on a plane in CAD. Um, to kind of get like a 2D projection of what the shape of the robot will be, um, kind of fitting in those non-variable components, right? Um, and generally it's easier the less non-variable components you have, but if you have nothing to go off of, like you are leaving everything up in the air, it's really hard um, because you, you just are overwhelmed with choices. And then from there, I'll kind of iteratively uh, build out the rest of the design. Um, and uh, I usually don't stop until I'm happy with it. So a lot of my robots have a lot of iterations. That I think is probably common with a lot of folks on this panel. Um, all right, so we'll move on to Ellis last with this question. Ellis, can you um, kind of tell us what the keystone of your design process is on some of the bots that you've built for the different shows that you've been on? Yeah, I think what's quite interesting is actually taking a step back from the TV show stuff and, you know, the stuff I've done in more recent times. I mean, everyone here is pretty well established in the sport. And so the process that we have now might actually be quite difficult, dif different, sorry, to at least how I started early on and how someone who's just getting into the hobby might, um, might kind of go about uh, developing a design. So I definitely would say, um, go back to the beginning of me doing this, then it was, as I've said, almost entirely component driven. So it's um, often costs to be lower and availability of certain you know, components or your, simply your experience um, limitations would mean that you're kind of much more, um, you, what you end up designing is shaped much more by, by what you have access to and what you can build around. So I can think of a perfect example for that is my second featherweight back in 2012. Um, we found, we, we knew we wanted to do a sewer snake style weapon, um, which later on became Sandstorm, you know, six, eight years later, whatever. But um, at that time, we didn't know how to do that, but we knew it was a big motor and we didn't know how to get a big motor. So we actually found a big cordless drill literally in the dump. 
And so then I modeled that in SketchUp and built the entire robot around that. And so that would be a very normal process, I think, if you're starting out in this hobby. But of course, then as you get more comfortable over time um, with your skill set, your knowledge, the, the components that are available to you and your costs go up, budgets go up, especially in the TV show world, then suddenly it's a lot less, at least in my case, about what your limitations are and much more about simply what you want to do. Um, so um, I can think of my most recent build that actually a lot of people may not have seen properly is the Hounds, which was a cluster bot, drum cluster bot, um, 55 kilos each in the headweight class for King of Bots. Um, and that was done in collaboration with um, Andy from, uh, um, uh, from Team Rapid over here in the UK. And we weren't that worried about the components and what we were going to use to do that design. We started off with the cool idea of just let's do the most competitive cluster bot that we can come up with. And so we thought, well, drum spinners, vertical spinners, we all know. And four-wheel drive, we all know that works. Um, uh, so we kind of started there and tried to make a cool shape within that and then figured out components to fit in it. So um, what that actually means from a CAD point of view, actually designing point of view today is pretty much the same as the others. Um, I tend to start in 2D space, you know, it'd be a sketch on the, on the main axis planes of the CAD um, kind of environment. Um, I know approximately, well, that's probably gonna be an 80 mil motor here and I want this sort of size wheel and you can start to see it in 2D and then start positioning your components and then building a shape around that. Um, that would be a fairly standard process for me. Um, so we're gonna move right into listener questions and I'm gonna stick with you, Ellis, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so we've got a few that came in um, over the, the question sessions earlier this week. Uh, so the first is from Rara Granger. So does the boy genius moniker get annoying um, or apply additional pressure when building? I don't know if I can answer this without screwing myself over one way or the other. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'm going to tell the truth. It, it, it did, it does get slash did get annoying at the time. Um, it was, it was always just a gag and you know people who haven't done the tv show bit maybe don't understand that the way that you answer questions in an interview setting and on the tv shows is that you you're kind of asked to repeat the question in the answer so that then it makes sense when you're editing and so uh, or you know on the show so then they pose the question you've been called yeah you know you've been called a boy genius what do you think about that so i repeated this in the answer and that was my grave mistake and the editing gods <laughs> um uh took me around town for that so ever since uh that's been my uh, moniker i wouldn't say it gives me any pressure like i mean it's silly at the end of the day um but it um it's kind of been there all along um it's I, again it definitely annoyed me a lot more back then these days i mean who cares um but uh but yeah i don't i never i never felt comfortable i never appreciated the the idea that um that it wasn't me doing it or maybe it was like mommy and daddy's money or something and the whole boy genius bit yeah that gets annoying because it's just not the truth um <laughs> but no it doesn't bother me anymore not really um i appreciate that answer thank you for being so <laughs> candid about that um so next question is from battlebot superfan mary Catherine carr um so you've had teammates from around the world what is that like and what weight class are you most excited to design for Ooh. um well, teammates is a weird one because I, for a long time, and I'd still say I'm primarily a lone wolf uh, in the sport. Um, when I started out, it was mostly being done like with, with my dad, basically. And then I kind of took over with wanting to learn more about engineering. He, he had some DIY tools in the shed. That's the sort of thing. And then over time, I gained the skills and it kind of became much more my thing. Um, 
and so they were um you know my team was was essentially me slash me plus my parents for quite a long time and then for the international shows um uh i teamed up with um steve from um uh death roll um to do the first king of bots and in that particular case I actually wasn't that involved in the main machine uh, with Great White. I built Neon, the little mini bot, um, mm -hmm. or Remora, I think it was technically called. Yep. Um, and uh, but it was super great hanging out with Steve. It was my first experience of having a team mate that wasn't either myself or my parents. Um, and uh, he's a super cool guy. I think we probably all met him here. So um, that was that was awesome. Um, and then uh, the other name that people will possibly know from the sport is, as I said earlier, Andy um, from Team Rapid. And that was uh, that was an, that was probably the first experience I've ever had with working with a team member who has my same skill set or same um, like obviously maybe not exact same skill set but at least designs and builds his own robots that are very competitive and very good. And so it was interesting collaborating collaborating literally on a day to day basis of kind of like well he he for example I'm remembering on the hounds he majored on the gearboxes whilst I majored on the weapon design and that sort of thing. And that was a really unique experience from my point of view and I, I would definitely do it again. Um, and then finally, I'll mention uh, Giles, my buddy from Reading, who uh, is uh, in the UK scene. Um, I think a man will remember him, perhaps. He had the dreads, he cut them all off. Um, and, uh, and so he has got an awesome eye for visuals as a designer. He's, that's sort of like 3D modeling, but more from like a video game side. So he was really able to pull out that style that we were going for with Sandstorm. So I've, yeah, worked with loads of different people. Um, and it's been really good. What was the follow-up question? Um, so what weight class are you most excited oh, to design for? It changes. I don't know if I have a single favorite. I, I really, really want to go back to featherweights and do an awesome featherweight. It's actually been quite a long time since I did a new feather. It's been three years. So I want to do something awesome from a, from a block of metal um, uh, uh, using all of the new resources. I've you know, got now manufacturing in China and stuff in my back pocket. So probably featherweights would be my next step. Um, and then obviously the TV show stuff is always fun. Absolutely. And then but exhausting. Um... <laughs> Next question is from Tom Brisbane. So yep. what was your favorite robot from the original UK Robot Wars series? Um, this might sound a bit odd to people, but I think it was probably Tornado. Um, I, was, I was a big fan of the, of the, of the four-wheel drive pusher. I don't know why. Um, uh, that and Storm 2, similar idea. Um, I, in fact, my first, um, my first handle, my first username on the FRA forum back when I was being an annoying brat when I joined in 2009 and just asking stupid questions when I was 12 um, was relentless because the whole idea of those pusher bots at the time on the TV shows was that they're relentless and I wanted to call my featherweight relentless. Turns out someone already did. So that dream was dead instantly. Um, but there you go. Probably, probably one of those too. <laughs> All right. And uh, last questions from me specifically. Um, so you've now designed bots for competitions in two continents. Mm -hmm. uh, but you haven't made the jump across the pond yet to compete in BattleBots. Um, I know you've thought about it. So what factors would you take into account when designing for BattleBots? I, I feel like, and I'm sure everyone would agree, that obviously the UK show, Robert Wars, has always got that more kind of shed-built sort of, um, uh, frankly, just being blunt about it, smaller budget um, sort of uh, vibe to it. And so I've always tried to be on the top end of that if I can. Um, uh, but it's quite a it's quite a different scene. Um, and then the China shows, I've got a lot of show, a lot of theatrics, um, uh, quite high budget because they've got budget there. But um, BattleBots is a bit different. It sort of marries the two where it's 
obviously high budget, but not quite in the same way. Um, it's, it, but it, it definitely is the forefront of the sport from a pure competitiveness point of view, even though there's still the visual and kind of crowd pleasing side to it. Um, and so the reason I've never necessarily um, jumped in just yet is I know that if slash when I compete on BattleBots, I need to make sure that I'm building the best version of whatever I can come up with possible. Not, not only because that's the level of the competition, but, but also I wouldn't necessarily go onto the world stage or the, the big stage um, with anything that I'm not super, super confident is not going to be embarrassing. So if I, if, and when I think about BattleBot stuff, it's always, I think like everybody here trying to marry function and form um, in the most optimum way. And so I possibly hold my standard for that a bit higher than is ideal because it means that I'm less inclined just to do anything, just to try and get on the show. Um, I'd rather try and be as competitive as possible. So um, I'd be I'd be trying to really finally balance that kind of form and function line. And I haven't quite cracked what I want to do yet. So, um, and I know I probably need to get a move on, but it'll happen, <laughs> hopefully. Thank you so much. Um, all right, so I'm going to move over to Isaac for a few fan questions. Uh, so the first one is from somebody you might have heard of. His name's David Rush. Um, he says, you've made some bold claims about robot components that could be 3D printed instead of machined and still hold up just as effectively. Are there any components that you wouldn't even attempt to 3D print? Um, <clears throat> I think that now that TPUs and nylons and other kind of more flexible, more durable filaments are available, there really isn't anything I, would, I wouldn't 3D print. I've fought in full combat classes with a plastic ant that I just printed out of nylon, and it worked great. Uh, my main ant weight has a 3D printed weapon axle. There, there is nothing in the insect classes that I don't think you could 3D print and still be competitive. Um, maybe like a, a drum spinner, or there are certain like archetypes you couldn't really pull off very well, but certainly you can build a 100% 3D printed robot in ants and beetles and be competitive, in my opinion. Um, so from Thy Jessica Phi, uh, what were the biggest challenges you faced when machining the body for Malice? Uh, the, the biggest challenge with that was the height of the robot. Um, so one of the components with Malice that we kind of set in stone at the very start was the ME909 motor. And we did that because it's really the simplest setup that we could find. There's not a whole lot of electrical experience with heavyweights on our team. Mm -hmm. So we just wanted to get the easiest, most bulletproof motor set up. Uh, but that motor is not compact, to put it mildly. Um, and that drove the height of the chassis. We used 12 inch wheels and a 10 inch tall chassis. And uh, for every additional inch of chassis thickness, the cost just increases exponentially and the difficulty to machine things just increases exponentially. So the challenge is really how to slice that up into layers to reduce the cost and reduce um, kind of the difficulty of, of getting that machined. That's interesting. Bringing like team ability into the design isn't something we've discussed yet. So I'm glad that you kind of brought up that point. Um, all right. So another question from somebody you might know, Bunny Sariel. What's your favorite tool to use when testing for strength of a material? Uh, my other robots. <laughs> every, <laughs> every time I, I'm testing new materials or testing new chassis or new designs, I have a test box and I 
you know, put the old part in the box with my robot and wail on it for a few minutes and see how it holds up. And if it looks like it, it's going to hold up well, then I'll uh, make the swap. But if I'm finding, you know, it's more than just the part, it's finding the geometry that complements the part well. Um, so I can either make tweaks to the geometry to try and make that particular material uh, work better, or I can switch the material out um, to, to hopefully get some better properties. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, so Brent Care wants to know, why did you choose to use UHMW for such a large portion of Malice? Now, this is interesting to me. I didn't know you use UHMW for a large portion of Malice. So, yeah, explain that, that thought process. Yeah, um, I'm a really big fan of UHMW and flexible materials in general. I kind of have a mantra when I'm designing a robot that every part has an amount that is acceptable for that part to flex, right? So if you're talking about your wheels, uh, they, can, they can probably flex a lot. You know, you can make those out of low density foam and they can really squish and it's not gonna really impact the performance of the part. And then maybe like uh, armor around the edges of your robot, like there's not really anything bad that's gonna happen because that flexes quite a bit, right? And the more it flexes, the more it can absorb impact instead of becoming uh, cracked or dented or, some, or shattered in some other way. Um, and so in general, every part of the robot that I can make flexier or squishier, I do. Um, and so there are big parts of Malice where uh, it doesn't really need to be stiff in that portion of the robot, right? The worst case scenario is if a hammer hits the top of it and the UHMW flexes in an inch, well, we've got inches of foam around all our batteries. Like, nothing's bad gonna happen. So UHMW, so Malice and all of my robots in general, um, kind of either have really, really stiff materials or really, really flexy materials. So on Malice, that manifests as we've got an AR500 front structure that's designed to keep the belt tensioned and keep the weapon in place and, and make sure nothing's gonna, we're not gonna hit ourselves. And then the entire rest of the robot is kind of designed to be as flexy as possible. Ooh, that's gonna be fun to watch in the box. I'm really excited about that. Um, all right, so next questions that we're moving on to are for Leanne. Uh, Leanne, we're actually going to start with a question from me, just because um, I'm super curious. So your team has been diving deeper and deeper into the pool of generative design. Uh, can you tell us about that integration and how it's affected your process? And then also, can you tell us a little bit about what materials you find work best as a generative design components? Yeah, um, well, uh, I mean, we, we use uh, Autodesk's uh, generative design stuff. Uh, yeah, or Ryan, because you like that. Anyways, um, so yeah, what I, I like the way that they explain it as it's sort of just an additional set of tools that is being placed, like, like that's like comp computational. It's similar to how CAD has become like game changing for engineers. Like one of my old coworkers would rant on about like having to have a drafting board and like stupid amounts of angles like to draw out and then slowly design a part that way, whereas now uh, 3D uh, modeling can expedite that. So that's sort of how generative design is changing um, product design or, or manufacturability or uh, like, it's, it's an option you can have um, that may or may not improve your robot. For us, we uh, recently showed off our frame rails. Um, we're saving about like 0 0.2, 0 0.3 pounds per frame rail 
and they look pretty. Um, we, we, it's not particularly cheap. Um, I'd say that last year our implementation of generative design was only with anything that we could also just metal 3D print because Mark Forge is one of our sponsors and they help us with that. Um, that makes it so you don't have to worry about having extensive uh, CNC time. Like I remember ogling over Quantum's uh, robot when we first got in for the season last year and we were printing a lot of parts for them too. And they were saying they're on 24 hour cycles of just watching uh, the metal just get cut and it just took that long. So if you have a lot of dollars, generative design is awesome. Or if you just want to 3D print something, like if it's going to be for a lower weight class or maybe a component that's on the like interior that you won't see um, or won't get beaten about, uh, that's a good way to use it at the moment. Um, I'm excited to see how it continues to be used. Like if you, uh, the, the Autodesk um, library for generative design is starting to grow. And so it's kind of just, if you're a super nerd about random applications for stuff uh i'd recommend just going and clicking through and seeing like how certain companies are using it for improved like structure or architecture or whatever it's really really pretty um and i think it is going to really change how engineering moves forward for certain disciplines like i see a lot of like bike tech getting pretty cool <laughs> yeah um, so fan questions for you um, from Rara Granger. What's Valkyrie's defense against hammers like? Asking for a friend, this friend is me. And then <laughs> she put a heart emoji and an elephant emoji? Oh. <laughs> well, technically we did face a hammer, well an axe, a Ragnarok last year, but we didn't really get to see besides having a very steep wedge uh what we were facing like we were we punched them out with like one hit so i don't know for sure but we do purposely have modular armor options across the robot to change out um and strengthen so we actually do have uh, a hammer uh strategy which is putting additional armor on top with some vibration damping um so we have a plan but we don't know how well the plan works still <laughs> so yeah um maybe we'll see uh, just a random compliment for me. I love how modular your bot is, and yet it maintains this same like through line of aesthetic with every module you put on it. It's really cool. Um, one of the things I love the most about Valkyrie. Um, okay, Alex so pretty. I love pretty. <laughs> well, it's very pretty. Um, all right, so from BattleBot Superfan Mary Catherine Carr. Um, what's it like being the only girl in a room full of men on a panel of designers? And then her follow-up question, which I think is also very important. Uh, now that Valkyrie is a bi-coastal team, which coast is the best coast? <laughs> um, well, I'm going to say West Coast, best coast. And I think that's just more me selfishly speaking from uh, the amount of robot jobs that are out here. So um, yeah, I do miss, I'm going nuts missing Boston. Like right now, Massachusetts has a fine you $500 a day if you don't follow a two week quarantine if you go to the state because I was kind of feeling lonely and missing my team. So I was looking at is it feasible to do that and then the answer is currently no. no. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the being in a room or a panel with a bunch of guys, being a mechanical engineer as a lady, you don't usually have any or many uh, female coworkers. 
I've kind of got used to it. Um, actually, the mo I, I started a new job a couple of months ago, and during my interview, um, one of my uh, teammates who I've gotten to be friends with now, but he asked me just point blank, like, so you do, if you haven't noticed in your interview process, you've not spoken with any girls, is that going to be an issue? And I was like, no, like, I have a problem with things I like, generally aren't uh, very popular with ladies. Punk music, not very much. Robots, not too much. Getting there though, especially like I'm noticing at small, like younger ages, uh, there's a lot more balance. So I'm, I'm hopeful. And whenever I do end up having lady coworkers, it's always like a bonus because you can talk about certain things you can't with just men. Not all men, but like makeup, for example, only some of my guy friends are into makeup. There's a lot more girls that are. So, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so we've got a question from the chat from Brad Rowan, uh, who wants to know, um, how has your professional experience as an engineer influenced your design of combat robots and vice versa? Well, the manufacturability and the cost of stuff definitely helps. And I've actually found that uh, the nice thing about robots is if you mess up, you don't get fired. So I do try a lot of weirdo things where like, I'm just gonna see what happens when you do meh. And that sort of helped with uh, putting it into like real life work too, is like when you're staring at a problem, I usually iterate through like other ways. Uh, I've seen something be done, like linear motion is one of those things that there's only so many ways to do it. And sometimes some of the creative creativity you'll see in smaller weight classes, especially usually someone not technically for your school trained or whatever, I usually like seeing the different ways solutions are there. And sometimes I do drag them into uh, whatever I'm working on or crazy harebrained things for work. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, my whole team is uh, professionally engineers too, or and or fabricators. So um, that's kind of helped a bit. Uh, I know whenever we are at competition, that helps a ton. Like Amanda is knows way more than me with fabricating and welding stuff. And so being able to be like, okay, we need to patch a panel. Like when Hypershock ripped a panel uh, in half um, in the first couple seconds of our fight. Uh, that was, was, okay, we need to patch this. We don't have a spare. Um, and Amanda was able to sort of figure out how well the patch job was done um, and what we could do moving forward. And so it's, uh, yeah, I think that having a professional experience helps. Um, and I, I do, well, I mean, it's just a robot problem. My job's robots and uh, the hobbies are robots, so. That helps. Um, all right, so let's move on to Orion. Um, so Orion, we have some fan questions for you. Uh, the first and foremost is uh, from superfan Mary Catherine Carr. Uh, do you feel like hijinks has an advantage in the upcoming season because you've managed to keep it under wraps even from other BattleBots teams? So we haven't kept it totally under wraps, but we definitely have made that move because of some of the early reactions from some of our uh, friends who also build. So we, um, we shared our design with a few other builders. Um, you know, kind of one of the things that we do behind the scenes is like, hey, what do you, how do you want to solve this? What do you think of this solution to this problem? And um, we had some of our uh, fellow builders um, come back with, we made a special weapon for you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, it, 
was definitely at that point I started thinking about just keeping it under wraps as much as possible. And that's usually what I do for a new design that came out. Like uh, before we brought Electric Boogaloo to Rebel Games, the only content that Dan and I put up on social media was Dan playing around in a bunch of cardboard tubes. And then it showed up at the competition and got a silver medal. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, Scorpios, all we released was like the logo, which had a scorpion thing in it. And then it showed up and did things. So yeah, I, I generally like, I, I try and keep stuff a little bit under my hat before it shows up to its first competition, um, just so people don't get a chance to build a specific attachment just for you with a lot of forethought. Like, I don't mind if they cobble something together at the competition, um, you know, but like if they're thinking of a whole configuration, there's, there's a few design aspects on the robot that uh, I'm not gonna say are totally unique, but definitely the combination of them presents a unique challenge. And it's pretty easy to tell what to do about that when you've seen a render of the robot. So yeah, I think there's gonna be some advantage. Um, just uh, people not ready for what we've got, but uh, we definitely do have a plan um, to, to reveal the robot whenever it's uh, appropriate, so yeah. <laughs> We're all really excited for that day to come. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right, so um, the next part of Mary's question, uh, I'm gonna kind of elaborate on. Um, so when Jen was on our show, she referred to you as the safety dad of BattleBots. Um, so her question is, can you please share with us a moment when you went full safety dad while designing and or building? Um, and I'm going to add a little bit uh, to that. Uh, so knowing you as the safety dad, as Jen described you, um, I, I also can't help but notice that a major component to Scorpios is a giant steel a wedge slash plow on the front of it. Is defense um, and safety a key component to your designs? Okay. All right. I'll tackle the first part of that. Um, so last yeah it was last season sometimes they blend together they are quite the <laughs> marathon last season um my friend jerry uh who had chronos was out in the welding area repairing his robot uh i believe it was after the copperhead fight it was after one of his fights and he was fixing his robot and the whole shell of his robot is magnesium alloy and he has titanium and steel bits that bolt to that and to this big assembly. And he was trying to get some of that broken stuff out. And he uh, was grinding and on the magnesium and then grinding on steel and titanium like in the same area. And he had a little, a little magnesium fire, um, which is actually kind of hard to do. Uh, it doesn't light off very easily. But he had titanium there to shoot some white hot sparks into it. And um, my response was I went over and grabbed the fire extinguisher and had it ready to blast his and work area. And Jen whipped out her phone and took a picture. <laughs> nice. So just different priorities. <laughs> um, as far as like defense um, on, on the robots, I, I always like having for 
or the robots a side that I can point towards my opponent and not have to worry about it. Like uh, if you look at Scorpios and you look at Electric Boogaloo, um, they have extra armor on the front, the side that has a weapon on it so that you can just keep that part pointed at your opponent. Um, and both those robots on the back aren't as armored. Um, uh, Electric Boogaloo only had a 16th inch of mild steel welded to the back, similar to Lastrites and Tombstone. And uh, Scorpios had more. It had a uh, 3 16th AR-400. Yeah. But uh, I, I like I like that focused strategy of, of one side. And there are some exceptions to that. I mean, there are some times when turning your robot around a different direction might make sense. Um, but it's difficult because you have to make that choice of like, I'm going to turn the robot around and attack with this side. And it's, it's easy to get lost in that uh, decision-making process in the heat of a fight. That makes perfect sense. Um, all right, and then we have a few fan questions for Emmanuel. Um, the first one is from Bunny Sario. Uh, Thanks for bringing so much to the community with your free 150 gram plastic designs in Thingiverse. Uh, do you ever end up fighting your own designs at competitions? Um, yeah, actually, a, a lot of those, well, lately there hasn't been competition, so I just will put them out there and, and you know, um, hope that other people will kind of tell me what's wrong with them and, and I can update and, and do phase one. But before I would always at least build it, make sure that it was somewhat competitive um, and then release the files because I wanted to make sure that people are going to take the time to build and, and make this kit and, and uh, get all the parts that I recommend that it's going to work. Um, so they're always at least bench tested uh, against each other. Um, the, the super if they're like true full combat, I won't release them until the um, they've at least had one set of uh, battles under there, just so that someone doesn't build it and then it, it just happens to explode the first time it actually gets in a competition. Uh, but for the most part, it all gets uh, tested. I mean, I, I'll do you know, 10, 12 different variations to optimize it, to, to make it as easy to print, as easy to assemble as possible uh, before putting it out there, just because people who are usually getting these kits or, or looking for kits are going to want a little bit of an easier assembly process than someone who's making from scratch might be able to work around a few little problems. Um, but in general, they're designed to, to be as easy to put together as possible. Gotcha. Um, all right. So the next fan question comes from uh, blacksmith captain Al, uh, who wants to know, can I use wubs in sheer? If, you, if the question is, can you, the answer is yes, you can. <laughs> Should you, depends on your, uh, depends on what your intended result is, but can you? Absolutely, you can do, you can do anything. I mean, it worked more often than not. I mean, we went all of season one in BattleBots, or season two, I guess, in BattleBots, no problems, all the way up to the you know, final 16. Uh, in China, we used them, no problems. Uh, uh, in, in reality, we uh, started testing the ones we had last season, um, and we were able to actually separate them by hand, um, as opposed to like the batch we had from a season, season before, um, were a lot more uh, robust. Gotcha. Uh, and I don't know if it was different manufacturers or different uh, just batch, uh, but we went through all the ones we had as spares, and we we're like, these are just literally falling apart on us. Um, so it didn't surprise us that we uh, had the epic uh, 
blitz. Um, but in the end, it's uh, it makes for a memorable uh, fight and memorable loss, and that's more important than, uh, or at least that that to me uh, makes the show better. And uh, you can't. I mean, I'm sure Greg and Trey couldn't ask for a better outcome in a fight than that. Absolutely. Um, so this is a question for me. You spend a lot of time collaborating with a variety of teams and designers. What's your favorite design tool for collaboration? Uh, like Google Hangouts, uh, Teams, uh, Zoom. Uh, you really can't beat just getting in, uh, getting on a call and just spinning cat around and just going over things. Um, with these like larger assemblies, it, it gets tough to, to do proper um, management. I mean, there's entire companies that are dedicated to how do you, you get, you know, five or six engineers working on a, a, a program. SOLIDWORKS has like a whole, you know, system built in, check in, check out parts. And uh, for what we're doing, it's not, uh, it's not, everyone has a different process. Everyone has a different way of building. So it ends up being a little bit tricky. We end up just, if, if you know, for Madcatter, we have uh, Calvin was doing the kind of the hammer assembly and I was doing the drive pod. So we just said, hey, these are the fixed lock points build within here. And then in the end, I'm just going to drop your assembly in, made it and, and go. Uh, and then we'll just kind of be on Zoom going back and forth. But um, doing a proper top down integration, like proper manufacturing uh, collaboration, it's just it's too time consuming and uh, for kind of the rapid pace that we work at. Um, so yeah, it, it's a lot of just, Hey, don't make sure it fits here and, uh, I'll give you two parts and that's, that's kind of the, the scope of it. <laughs> um, all right. So we are rolling up on the, uh, the end of our time here. Um, so I wanted to throw kind of a last question at you guys and, uh, we'll go back down the line kind of in reverse to answer those, this last question. Um, so the last question that I have is, how do you select the best material for a robot part? Are there a bunch of trade-offs between different materials such as density, tensile strength, duct uh, ductility, and hardness? Um, and in what situations would aluminum, titanium, steel, or magnesium be most beneficial? I think we can sum this question up by saying, what's your favorite material? Emmanuel, go ahead and start it off. Um, I've, like Isaac, I've been a fan of just you know, starting to 3D print things, uh, at least for the smaller weight classes. Uh, a lot of, I guess, starting out, uh, I guess, like Ellis was saying, you know, th there's a whole bunch of uh, constraints that kind of lead to creativity and, and being able to just, con you know, if you can start constraining yourself to a material, uh, you end up having to get kind of creative solutions and 3D printing at least allows, allows you to have a ton of kind of options and creativity because you can kind of build and print whatever. Uh, whereas you start getting into machining and, and all these other crazy materials, there's limitations on what you can make. Um, and uh, yeah, to me, to me, just any kind of 3D printed plastic, uh, at least for the smaller weight classes, just allows you to have so much more fun and, and kind of get wild and crazy. Um, so to me, that, that's kind of my favorite uh, medium to work in. Orion, what's your favorite material? Well, um... I started um, building plate steel AR400 robots uh, pretty early on um, compared to a lot of other builders. And it's just so much faster to build a robot that way than any other way that I've tried. So the first version of Electric Boogaloo um, was a tube steel chassis, rear 
basically just copying Ray Billings, you know, last rights, um, 4130 one inch chromoly tube steel chassis mm -hmm. and just applying it to our design. And we spent weeks like doing tube fitment and uh, fish mouthing tubes and welding inside tight corners and, and all that stuff. And the second version that never competed that I designed, um, after I got the uh, plasma cut parts, which were about the same price as the tubes, except they were already cut and CNC, uh, it took me by myself one weekend to clean up all those parts and weld them together. Uh, it, it's just a huge time saver. So that's that's my favorite. And so um, uh, both versions of um, Scorpios uh, and uh, Rex were all AR400. It's relatively inexpensive. It's just a you know high carbon manganese steel with just some heat treatment on it. Um, it CNC plasma cuts and laser cuts easy. It welds pretty easy. I mean, there's some stuff that you can do to make it weld easier, but even if you just weld it like it was mild steel and just crank the heat up a little bit, it pretty much just sticks together and it's pretty nice. I mean, it's used on tractors <laughs> as much as it's used as, uh, you know, targets on a rifle range. So it's a great material. Love it. Uh, so Leanne, yeah, uh, what is your favorite material to use in design? It's really difficult because like if I pick one, I, I like I was like, oh, titanium because it's expensive and like it works really well, but it's brittle. So uh, I think I'm just going to say the bold thing of aluminum because there's probably going to be some element that's aluminum in most things I design. Also, when you have things like uh, exometry and um, send, cut, send, where you can just like hit go have parts in a week or whatever is great. And aluminum makes that actually kind of affordable. I do like 3D printed stuff too. I don't know. I have a, multiple children, different specialties. <laughs> don't, don't, can't just pick one as the favorite, but I'd probably say that Loom is probably what I'll back because also build porn is always great. So. Amen to that. <laughs> um, Isaac, what is your favorite material to play with? I'm just going to go with plastics of any kind at any scale. <laughs> uh, so, for a while, some people had a nickname for me on the forum, which was Plastic Ant-Man because I was just building so much more stuff out of plastic than other builders. Um, I'll 3D print more stuff than other builders. And even in the heavier weight classes, I'll, I'll choose plastics. Um, I just really like how cheap they are, how easy to machine they are. You know, you can get a four by eight sheet of inch thick UHMW for way cheaper than you can get uh, any kind of metal. And they're lower density. So it's not really like comparing, you know, is a quarter is a quarter inch of UHMW better than a quarter inch of aluminum? It's comparing is an inch thick of UHMW better than a quarter inch of aluminum? Um, and I, I just always find the flexibility and and uh, durability of them to be really good too. So I'll say plastics of any kind. <laughs> I like that. Um, all right, and then. We'll just throw it over to Ellis. Uh, so Ellis, what is your very favorite material to play with? Sorry, I've not been listening. I've just been looking at my cat and Leanne's cat the whole time. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not fair going last because everyone's already said what I wanted to say, but um, I want to touch kind of briefly on, on Orion um, on that sort of side of like um, water jet cut 
in, in like obviously in the US it's known as AR plate. Um, in the UK we call it Hardox, same stuff basically. Um, I started off because I didn't have the ability to weld. I started off with water jet cut um, frames that were held together with basically massive nut strip and just keying everything in and bolting it all in. It's very heavy and not very space um, uh, efficient, but um, the cool thing is that you can really carefully isolate where damage actually then transfers through to. So if you've got a welded chassis and you get a big hit on one side, then the whole thing can twist. But if you've got um, panels that are kind of bolted together, then with some careful design, you can take a hit and you can really kind of nicely predict how that's going to deform and where and potentially take an entire panel off and very easily flatten it and put it back on as against to if a whole frame goes and it fails and it twists, then it's basically never the same again. So big fan of that process. And um, same as Isaac, um, uh, shout out to, again, you guys call it UHMW or UHMWPE. We call it HDPE, same stuff. Hey, I think she's done. Um, yeah, uh, and just there are some things that you absolutely can't do with metals that you can do with plastics. Um, an example would be my featherweight neon, which is a crazy, it's actually quite like Valkyrie. It's like a crazy big undercutter underneath two wheels that doesn't like staying on the ground very much. Um, flies around a lot and the only reason it works is because it's plastic and it absorbs its own shocks and it wouldn't really work any other way. So, um, uh, and actually final point, interesting observation is that actually Hardox or AR plate is very springy and that's possibly something that people that might be starting out maybe aren't so aware of. Um, it's, a, it's very hard as you would say, as it would suggest by being called Hardox, but when you get it out to that scale of a headweight frame, it's very flexible and actually that, so if I wanted to do uh, something which in, a, in an insect or a featherweight I did with plastics, I might actually consider titanium or hardox because they're both very springy materials at that scale. Um, thank you. That was a great answer. Um, so this is going to have to be the end of our panel. We could obviously talk about this for another two, three, seven hours, um, but we have limited time here at the Miami Maker Faire. So I just wanted to say thank you to all of our panelists and to cats for joining us today. Um, you guys were fantastic. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, enjoy the rest of the Maker Fair, everybody. It's going on for the rest of today. And uh, you can watch everything online after the fact. So thank you guys very much. Cheers. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye. It's the Bye, old Zoom wave. <laughs> <laughs> after the break, we'll return with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. This week, we're traveling to Plymouth, Massachusetts, where the Mayflower landed back in the year 1620. Before that, America didn't exist at all. <laughs> That's at least what they teach you in high school these days. Mm -hmm. In mid-September, a robotic sailboat bearing the same name will embark on the same voyage and attempt to cross the Atlantic Ocean autonomously without any human intervention. The Mayflower Autonomous Ship will use sensors and artificial intelligence to steer itself out of danger and hopefully arrive in Massachusetts in time for the 400th anniversary of the landing at Plymouth Rock. So this is really, really neat and kind of a nice counterpart to last week's installment where we talked about the robotic sloths that uh, patrol the forests. Now we have autonomous ships patrolling our sea. When it, when it gets back here, are we going to have to, like, teach it how to grow corn and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that first winter for, you know, the uh, autonomous ship is going to be really difficult. It's going to need to 
to lean on the help of, of its community. Uh, Lindsay uh, and Chris, you know, as IBM employees, you should be particularly proud and interested in this story because IBM is a huge part of this, this project. They're supplying a lot of the AI that's going to go into the sailboat. Um, I think they're kind of like one of the two main groups that are, that, that are working on this, this boat. Let the record show that IBM does a lot of cool things, and uh, this is one of them. I think I think you guys are all making a mistake. Um, Luke, there's a difference between this IBM and, and our IBM. This is this is actually international boating maritime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. It was small i, small b, small m. You're correct. <laughs> yeah. This is just a group of uh, of uh, seven individuals from from Plymouth who hang out in garages and work on boats. <laughs> So in eighth grade, we took a trip in my middle school to uh, Massachusetts, and we saw Plymouth Rock. And I have to admit, it was very underwhelming. They just picked a random rock. They're, they don't know what, you know, boulder, what rock the ship actually first touched upon. So they just picked a random rock, and it's very small, and it already had graffiti over it. So I don't know how this boat is going to find that tiny little rock, but I wish it luck. The International Boating Maritime Group is going to help them, you know, with, uh, with the AI. That's very advanced AI. <laughs> but this is really neat. And, and you know, we, we were kind of talking about it before the show, um, but it makes sense, right? Like, if we're going to have self-driving cars, why wouldn't we also extend that technology over to ships? Which, presumably, it might be even easier to, to program navigation than, than cars, I mean, it's got to be easier than doing cars. You you got a whole ocean. There's not exactly roads. You're not worried about hitting a whole lot of things. It's got to be way easier. Um, I did not know that about Plymouth Rock, though. So we don't know where the real Plymouth Rock is. We just we just picked one. They just literally they picked one, and then wow. so you know when you go to carnivals and there's like the sideshow element, and you're like can see the world's smallest donkey or something and yeah. then like or I, like, charles <laughs> and then like they they put you in this room and it's like below you and it's made to look really small based because you're like standing above it and looking down on it like it's the same thing with plymouth rock it's like behind these like um bars and you're looking down on it and it just makes it look even smaller it was a letdown to my eighth grade self Oof, that sounds like some uh, bad, like, production design, really. Like, if you're going to, you know, have a tourist trap that is Plymouth Rock, you should really build that thing up, make it look big and, and awesome, and get some sculptors out there and some painters. Especially if you're picking any old rock. Pick the yeah. biggest one. Yeah, pay a couple, pay, you know, 50 grand and, and have some people come build you a good Plymouth Rock. A nice, like granite just boulder no one will know the difference nobody's gonna know the difference. <laughs> so how big is this uh this robot boat <laughs> that's a good question uh, i'm not sure <laughs> is it like as big as the mayflower no i don't think so i mean i i saw a rendering that that was kind of attached to this this story um and it looked very cool from the rendering but yeah, you know, there's no sense of scale. There's there's no banana in the image. It could be. Why is you know, there no banana? Just always put in a banana. 
it could be the size of a battle bot, you know, zooming across the Atlantic. Who knows? Uh, it I guess, sounds like a ter- that sounds like a terrible like, like a great white's just gonna swallow that. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, sharks are actually misunderstood creatures, and they just don't go around swallowing robots. No, 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 no. I'm anti-shark. I watched Shark Week this year, and I think that the shark lobby is too powerful. And we, you know, really spend a lot of time praising these creatures when they're just sociopathic killers, and we we don't need to be venerating them. That's that's my new position I, on sharks. We we didn't do a Shark Week episode this year. Uh, I, I wish we had. Uh, we really should. Like, I did watch the whole yeah. thing this year. <laughs> we dropped the ball on that one, but um. <laughs> favorite is Discovery's messaging because uh, like you know in that like 7 p.m. time slot you're hearing from a scientist who's like you know uh, sharks they're just heavily misunderstood they're very fascinating creatures of the sea and then at like 8 o'clock it's like world's deadliest shark attacks <laughs> and then at 9 o'clock it's like Mike Tyson literally fights a shark <laughs> I, I can't <laughs> gloves on that shark it was ridiculous it didn't even <laughs> and to be fair though i mean especially with the last couple of shark weeks because what they've been covering the last like two or three years of shark week is that um the the air jaws the jumping sharks that hang out outside of south africa um the reason they're not there anymore is because the orcas have been literally taking their livers like attacking them and taking their livers so orcas are having a really detrimental effect on large great white shark populations, like specifically larger great whites, great whites over uh, 12 feet. Um, so, you know, really this robot, this poor, poor Mayflower <laughs> robot, I would be more concerned about orcas messing with it. Well, that's about it for us today. We'll be back in your feed next Wednesday with a super top secret mystery guest. We'll see you then, folks. Bye. Have a good week. Become a BattleBot supporter. Nice.